Now, for a few minutes, I'm going to come down and I'm going to address the children that are here. I'm going to invite James to come up and he's going to bring his book on the life of Joseph. Thank you, James. Now, we'll get James to hold up this book. Okay, so we can get it on camera. This is about Joseph and his brothers, good lad James. And it's a very interesting book. I'm going to read to you from the New Testament. The story of Joseph is found in the Old Testament. Many, many chapters in Genesis mention Joseph's name. But I want to read from the New Testament. And this is what the Bible says. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, remember Joseph had 11 brothers and one sister. And he had a younger brother called Benjamin. And remember, of course, his brothers... They hated Joseph because of his dreams. They hated him because of his words, because he also told the truth about the bad things they were doing to his dad. And also they hated him because his dad gave him a special coat, the coat of many colors. And remember what happened to Joseph? Remember they were going to kill him? Remember it was Judah's intervention that he didn't. They threw him into a pit. They sold him to um, group of men called Midianites. He ended up in the land of Egypt. He was sold as a slave. He ended up in Potiphar's house for a time. He was Potiphar's chief steward. And then remember lies were told about Joseph that he did a bad thing. Joseph ended up in jail. And remember even in jail, God blessed him. Joseph told a number of dreams to the butler and the baker. They came to pass. And then eventually Joseph, remember, told Pharaoh his dream. So we've got to think of Joseph. If I remember the last time we spoke about him, Joseph is living in a new house somewhere in Egypt, probably in the capital city. He's the prime minister now of Egypt. And these 11 men, remember, they have came to buy grain. And they're not Egyptians. They're from the land of Israel. And Joseph recognizes them. They are Joseph's 10 brothers. The youngest brother is called Benjamin. And Joseph accuses them, remember, of being spies. And um, these uh, ten brothers, remember, for three days, Joseph put them into jail. And I'm sure they were very scared. Would you like to be in jail, James? No, I wouldn't like to be there either. Three days they were in jail. And remember Joseph said, right, I'm letting you out. But one of you, you're going to stay in jail. His name was Simeon. And you're going to stay here until you come back and you bring your younger brother, Benjamin, with you. You see, some people think, well, Joseph was acting out of revenge to his brothers, but he wasn't. He wanted to see if his brothers had really changed. Remember, he recognized them. They didn't know him. Because he was dressed in the dress of an Egyptian. He spoke Egyptian. And the strange thing is, whenever they were in jail, they were nudging each other and saying, you know, all this has come uh, to pass, these bad things that are happening to us, because of what we did to Joseph. And they were started blaming each other. 
And he could hear every word. He could understand their speech because remember, he was also an Israelite, but he didn't disclose himself to his brothers. The brothers were sent home. Remember, the money was back in their sack. And then they got home, told their dad, Jacob, we can't go back to Egypt unless Benjamin. Why did you tell them about Benjamin? Well, the man asked about his father and had he any other brothers and we just told him the truth. Well, eventually, remember the story? They sent back again from Israel to the land of Egypt. They came this time with Benjamin. And whenever Joseph, of course, saw Benjamin, he was really glad, but he didn't reveal himself to them. They got the grain. They set off back home. They thought, this is great. Everything's good. Simeon's out of prison. All 11 of us, we're all together again. We're safe and sound. Dad will be really pleased. And all of a sudden, they could see soldiers coming. And they stopped them. And they started searching every man's sack. What are you looking for? And they started with the eldest. Remember Simeon? And they would write down all 10 brothers. And then they come to Benjamin. And remember what was in Benjamin's sack? Do you remember what was in Benjamin's sack? Was it a silver cup? Yes, that's right. A silver cup. That was Joseph's cup. Because remember, he had brought them to his home. He had fed them. And then they were being accused, not only of being spies, but being thieves. They could have been made slaves for the rest of their lives. They maybe even could have been put to death. So can you imagine this picture? They're all brought back into the house of the prime minister and they're now being accused of theft. And the man that's done this, he's going to be my slave forever. Now it was all part of a plan of Joseph, remember? And whenever they thought, Benjamin, he's going to what? He's going to end up this man's slave. How are we going to tell dad? And then Judah stepped forward and he said, sir, Please don't do that. That's our youngest brother. And if you send us home without him, our dad, he'll surely die. Joseph said, or Jadis said, I'll tell you what, Joseph, you make me your slave. I'll be your slave for the rest of your life. Let this young boy go through and everybody else. And at that point, remember what happened in the story. Okay, here's Joseph. And he's now beginning to reveal himself to his brothers. What he did was he put every Egyptian out of the house. And then he told his brothers, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. You know the one that you said bad things to? The one that you put into a pit and sold as a slave? The one that you pretended to my dad that I was actually dead? Well, I'm now the prime minister. And you know what? God was in this place. God sent me here. And I just want you to know that I forgive you for the bad things that you did towards me. Now, how could Joseph do that? Remember what our text said. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, forgiveness was based upon repentance. It was based upon a change of attitude. And that's exactly what Joseph was looking for in his 10 or 11 brothers. And especially he wanted to see Judah's reaction, Simeon's reaction to what was about to happen to Benjamin. And you know, boys and girls, young people, there's a very important lesson, a spirit of forgiveness 
And if you're a true, genuine Christian, you're born of the Holy Spirit, and God has forgiven you all your many sins, then we need to learn that spirit of forgiveness toward other people who do us wrong and do us harm. But remember this, forgiveness has to be seen in the context of true repentance and in the context of change. All right? So I leave that thought with you. Will we finish this next week, James? And we'll tell them about more about Joseph. Right, thank you. Now this morning, we are continuing with our series of sermons in the book of Colossians. And today my text is taken from Colossians chapter 1 and in the verse 28 and in the verse 29. The Apostle Paul says, writing to the church whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. For unto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, I've entitled this sermon today, The Great Goal of Every True Gospel Preacher. From the end of Colossians 1, verse 23, right through to Colossians 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul is writing about himself in the first person plural. Note the words, for of I, Paul, was made a minister, verse 23. Notice that he even puts in for us his own name. Previously, he had wrote about we, reference to others, thinking of Timothy, who was with him, thinking of Epaphras, thinking of them as fellow brothers in Christ and fellow laborers in the gospel. Now, he drops the word we and replaces it with I. You see, in this portion, from verse 23 on to the Colossians 2.5, the Apostle Paul begins to highlight in detail the kind of ministry that he himself has exercised among men. He gives us here a little glimpse into his life and work. We could really say these verses are indeed biographical. Because undoubtedly they reveal to us what's exactly upon his heart and mind as he preached the gospel. Now in past weeks we have thought about Colossians 1, verse 24 and 25, under the heading, The Faithful Ministry of God's Suffering Servant. And on that occasion we thought of Paul as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, a faithful sufferer of Jesus Christ, and a faithful steward of Jesus Christ. And then from Colossians 1, verse 26 and 27, we tried to understand what the great glorious mystery of Christ is. The Apostle Paul identified it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And during that particular sermon, I set before you the essence of this mystery. What is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, we then thought about an examination of this mystery and began to open it up a little bit. And we ended with the experience of this uh, mystery. Remember, it's a divine revelation of Jesus Christ in all his fullness. It's a divine proclamation of Jesus Christ in his person and work. And it's a divine realization of Jesus Christ in that person and work. There's a divine realization. There's a divine remembrance. Natural man, remember, hasn't got the ability in himself to attain the knowledge of God. 
a, a natural man by his own insight, intuition and power hasn't got that ability. Let's remember also that the whole success of the gospel depends on the outworking of the Lord. And this is all part of that real, rich, glorious mystery revealed to Paul. Now today I simply want to move on. We're looking at Colossians 1, verse 28, 29. I will ask the question of Paul, what is the great goal of every true gospel preacher? What is the real aim and reason for your existence as a preacher of the gospel? Is it to defend your personal integrity because you've been accused of being a liar? fraudulent person, an untrustworthy man. Remember, that's exactly what the false teachers were doing to Paul. They were questioning his apostleship. They, they were questioning, uh, questioning his, his person. They, they were saying, but this man's got a bald head. This man's got a, a bad speech impediment. This man's a prisoner of Rome. Was Paul goal and aim merely to show forth his love for the people of God and suffering, privations for them? Was his goal to simply battle with heresy? Now the answer to these things would be a resounding yes, but it's much more than that. Paul, as he held fast to the uniqueness and exclusiveness of the gospel, he did so for this reason. Now listen to me. It wasn't just to defend his personal integrity. It wasn't just to show his love to the people of God and that he was willing to suffer for them. It wasn't just that he was battling heresy. That was all part and parcel of the gospel ministry, but it wasn't his great goal. His great goal was that they would grow in the gospel. Grow so much that his goal was to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That was and remains the primary reason for the existence of every true gospel preacher. For the Apostle Paul, this was a matter of life and death. This was a task that caused him great and deep agony of soul. This was a task that he had a burden and love for in relation to the people of God. This is a burden that he diligently labored, not just to see them saved, not just to see them going on with God, but so that they would be wholly sanctified and that they would reach such a maturity in Christ until they would be brought into the glorified and perfected state. So hence the title, the great goal of the true gospel minister. Now three things this morning. I want you to see the primary purpose of the gospel preacher. He says here in this text, whom we preach. Now we're going to pause there. The chief role of the gospel preacher is what? To preach Christ. Now that's simple. That's elementary. That's fundamental for us as free Presbyterians. He has just told us, by way of explanation, what he believes the rich and glorious mystery is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he adds this, whom we preach. I want you to see the connection. The chief work of the true gospel preacher as a servant, as a sufferer, as a steward, is to preach Christ. Not only a Christ who redeems his people, not only a Christ who receives his people and claims them for his own, but one who actually indwells his people, one who lives in us by his spirit. We are his because he indwells us by his spirit. 
You see, when the true gospel preacher stands in the pulpit, that is his overriding passion. He exists to exalt and to preach Christ. He's not there to give his opinions. He's not there to give man-made philosophies. He's not there maybe as a historian or a poet or uh, uh, someone who uh, 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 preaches church traditions. He's not merely someone in the pulpit to give wee stories and and, and, uh, uh, use illustrations. While the stories and illustrations are good, He is using them to present and preach Christ. Notice the message here, whom we preach. We could sum up the message in one word, Christ. If we grasp something of the rich, glorious mystery of the gospel, the very heart and center of that mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, centers on expounding Jesus Christ in all his fullness, of a biblical revelation of himself. You've got to think this morning of his eternal sonship. John 3 and 16 comes to mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about the mystery of the incarnation. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great is the mystery of God. And as God was manifest in the flesh. Think of his virgin birth coming up to Christmas time. We'll be thinking of this again. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. You've got to think of his sinless life. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In whom was no sin. You've got to think of his life of perfect obedience to keeping the law of God. He says, I do always those things that please the Father. God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You've got to think of his blood atonement. 1 John 1 and 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You've got to think of his once and for all very vicarious sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10 and 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. You've got to think of his bodily resurrection. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. You've got to think of his glorious ascension. Acts 1 and verse 11. You've got to think of his visible personal return. You see, all of this, including his eternal priesthood, including the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that that he earned uh, uh, and bestows upon his people uh, through union with himself. We are in him. Paul 90 times used the words, in Christ. And in Christ we enjoy all the blessings and benefits of redemption. Not only are we in him, but he is in us. The indwelling Christ lives in us by faith. You see, part of the problem today in some circles, maybe we could add many circles, is that what is being preached from the pulpit is far removed from Christ Because it's not centering in Christ. Sadly, many are preaching principles, but not the person of Christ. Sadly, many are preaching sacraments, but without preaching the Savior who instituted the sacraments. If I asked the question this morning, who alone can deal with the guilt of our total depravity before God? Who alone can legally declare us righteous before a holy God? Who alone can give us a perfect legal obedience to stand before a holy God? 
Who alone can give us eternal assurance of salvation? Who is it that redeems the soul and the merit and ground of his shed blood? Who alone receives and answers our prayers? Who alone is with us in life's journey? There's only one answer. The person of Christ. And you see the job and task of every true gospel preacher is to set before men and women the beauty of Christ's person and the all-sufficiency of his glorious work. That's the message. Notice the method whom we preach. The word preach means to announce with authority as a herald. You've got to think of a man that has got passion and power. A man who stands and says, Thus and thus saith the Lord. A, a, a man with a message from God, and that message centers in the person and work of Christ. You see, these false teachers in Colossae, they prided themselves on their spiritual attainment. They prided themselves in their superior wisdom, their system of teaching, their philosophy, the traditions of men, a set of rules and regulations. But Paul, when he came, he didn't preach himself, he preached. Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul preached Christ. Remember Acts 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He didn't preach the church. He didn't preach a code of ethics. He, he didn't call men and women to a, a company of do-gooders. No, he set before them Christ. Christ is the answer, he said, to men's need. Christ is the end of every man's spiritual quest. You see, Paul was a man with a message from God. And that message from God centered in Christ and he preached it with all the power and passion the Lord enabling him. You see, if we think of the Protestant Reformation, there's a place for singing in the house of God, a place for the playing of music, a place for prayer, even a place for the reading of the Bible. Do you know I believe there's even a place for discussion and dialogue among God's people? But the main part of the worship service is the preaching of Christ and the power and authority of the Holy Ghost. That's the primacy of the gospel preacher. Notice secondly here, and quickly, the proclamation of the gospel preacher. Notice he says here in the text, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. There's the proclamation of the gospel preacher. If you go back there to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 20 and in the verse 28, the apostle Paul says this. He's addressing the Ephesian elders. He's at a place called Miletus. And he says this, verse 28, Acts 20, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, whom he hath purchased with his own blood. The Apostle Paul warned every man. The word warning means to admonish. It's right and proper to preach Christ. It's right and proper that we proclaim and present positive truth. But it's also right and proper that we warn every man. It's necessary to warn God's people. 
Paul was like a spiritual father to the local church. And his duty was not only to preach positive things, but also to warn every man. How did he do it? Not by chastisement, although there is a warning through chastisement and the rod of discipline. But I believe primarily he was warning by words. It was a word of rebuke. It was a word of reproof. It was a word of instruction. It was a word of right living. He was admonishing and training God's people by use of this word of warning. And you see, when we think again of the pulpit ministry, there's many things to preach about. Think of the subject of money. Think of the subject of wisdom. Subject of marriage, morality, even membership. But the key in dealing with all of these subjects is Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. When we think about the riches of this world, we, we, we ultimately think of being rich toward God, the riches of Christ. We, we even think about living out our lives as husbands, wives, young people, and children. We have many duties and responsibilities, but we can't think about them and we can't fully understand what those duties and responsibilities are apart from Christ and the gospel. You see, no Christian could live a full-orb Christian life without a, a reference to Christ. And in living out the Christian life, Paul's advice in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 12 was this, warn the unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. You see, I would encourage you not only to think positive things, but remember, part of Paul's proclamation was to warn every man. Now, the warning is never popular, but do not despise the warning because the warning can lead to ruin. And part of that warning is to remember that God is. The fool have said in his heart, there is no God. So he warns that fool, God is. And remember, he also added, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He warned sinners, God is angry with the wicked every day. He warned that all nations that forget God will end up in this awful place that the Bible calls hell. He, he, he warns that sin pays wages. He, he warns the soul that sinneth, it shall die. There are so many aspects to this warning. Do we not live in a day when there's much to discourage? The spiritual outlook's bleak and barren. And you need a word of help and a word of encouragement. Well, here it is. Remember you're in Christ. And Christ indwells you. And you're his, you're his by birth, his by blood, his because the love of God is in you. You're part of the family of God this morning. You're his child. You're complete in him. And if you think about heaven, you don't get to heaven because you've followed rules, because you've performed this right or that right. You can only get to heaven through Christ. And, and um, we preach Christ to the unsaved. We warn them. We summons them in his name to repent and believe the gospel. And, and we say to them, don't despise Christ. Don't demean Christ. Don't turn away from Christ. But we also preach Christ to all who profess faith in him. 
We live in a world where, sadly, there's much deception. Another gospel is preached. Another Jesus has been presented, energized by another spirit. And what is missing? The true Christ of the Bible and all the fullness of his person and work. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, as a Christian, how can I be strong for, for God and home and the workplace, school and university? How can you grow strong in Christ? How can I pray better? How can I know God in a deeper and a better way? How, how, how do I live for God? How, how do I do the work of God? How do you function as a father, as a mother, as a Sunday school teacher, as a children's worker? Let me tell you, you can't do it apart from Christ. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. You see, Christ is the key. It's not about being more loving and, and more kind and more uh, truthful and, about, and more forgiving. You can't do it apart from Christ. Oh, think this morning of your blessings in Christ. You're chosen in Christ from before the world began and eternity passed. Think if he called you in time, repent and believe the gospel. Via that effectual call, he, he changed you. If any man be in Christ, is a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new. He gifted you the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. He has cleansed you in the precious blood. He cares for you this morning. He, he carries you even when you're weak. He, he comforts you in your sorrows. He, he communes with you. He, 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 he counsels you so that he can keep you in the right path. He, he'll guide you with his eye. He provides for you. So often we've failed him. But in those areas when we have failed him, and in those times, what have we done? We've been unmindful of him. We, we have a tendency to forget and forsake him. And what do we need? We not only need those truths to fill our mind, but we need his warnings. Those warnings remind us of serious issues at stake. And Paul warned every man because of the corruption of the gospel. Because of the carelessness toward the gospel. Because of the changes that false teachers were making to the gospel. And he's warning them that there's danger ahead. There has to be a policy of zero tolerance when it comes to the gospel. Think about teaching every man in all wisdom. Here's another aspect of this proclamation. Expounding and explaining the gospel to every man. Encouraging every man by the gospel. But, but notice the words, not, not just teaching, but notice the words every man. You, you see, three times he mentions, if you look at the text, whom we preach warning every man. And teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. Do you, do you notice the repetition of every man? Why does he do that? Well, I believe for this reason that there's no hierarchy in the church. There's no people in the church with a superior knowledge or light than others. There's no elite group in the church. There's no such thing then as a second class citizen. Nobody can say, I don't count. That doesn't apply to me. You see, there was those in Paul's day who were claiming to be superior. They had superior knowledge and light. They were saying, we here have been gifted the gift of wisdom and you haven't, and therefore you're second class to us. But Paul put every man as an individual before God. 
He also put every man universally before God. None are excluded. None are left out. It's all for you. These warnings are for you. This teaching is for you. In wisdom. That's the proclamation of the gospel preacher. Notice one final thing this morning. The purpose of the gospel preacher. Not only the primacy. Preach Christ. Preach it in passion and power. Not only the proclamation. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. But think of the purpose of the gospel preacher. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Note the word that. It's a demonstrative. Here's the chief purpose of the gospel preacher. The apostle Paul was laboring what? To produce fully mature Christians who will take a stand for Jesus Christ in his day and generation. That was his chief goal. Every man in Colossae. Every man in Asia Minor, every man who was in Christ, he was not only preaching to see men and women converted, and that's a great goal in itself. He was not only preaching to see these men and women begin to labor and to serve Christ in the context of living out their life wherever they were geographically, but he also preached Christ to see these men become strong and fully mature Christians. Notice the words, present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, that's nothing to do with sinless perfection. He's not saying that on earth these men can become morally and ethically and spiritually perfect as God is in and of himself. That's not what he's saying. No, what he's saying is this, that he wants those that are spiritually babes in Christ to grow up in Christ and become strong. He wants them these babes in Christ to become young men, pillars in the house of God, young women to be mothers in the Israel of God. He wants them to become fully mature. He's thinking about childhood, babyhood, teenagehood, if we could call it that. He wants them to progress to adulthood so they can be fully mature in their heart and, and in their mind and in love and in truth. Over there in the book of Ephesians, he says this in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. What motivated him? Why did he labor in the way that he did? Here was his main purpose, to present every man fully mature in Christ. Notice the words in verse 29 as we close, whereunto I also labor a striving according to his working. Here's the goal of all my labor. It's not just to see new converts come from darkness to light, but it's to see them become fully mature Christian. Could you imagine this morning if a family, a new baby's born and what excitement a new baby is. But over time, that, that baby is not growing. It, it's not making progress. It, it doesn't have the appetites that a baby has. 
Wouldn't that be heartbreaking for a mummy and a daddy? For a family? And that does happen physically to some children. But Paul's thinking of it not in a physical context. He's thinking of it in a spiritual context. Those that are 40 and 50 years spiritual babies. And they haven't grown in their understanding of the gospel. And they don't know Christ in a deeper and a better and a greater way than they did from the day they got saved. Their growth has been stunted. And is this not an age of immature babes? And is that not why we see a display of carnality and a display of worldliness and a lack of discipleship and many not going on and free with the Lord? And then Christians that are motivated by a spirit of jealousy and spirit of envy and a spirit of hatred and, and, and harboring a spirit of bitterness because someone has harmed them and done them wrong. You think of Joseph this morning. Could you put yourself in Joseph's shoes? Could you imagine if that had happened to you? Your brothers hated you because of your dreams, because of your words, because of that you were the, the favorite son of your dad. And then your brothers done wrong to you. And, and today, you, you harbor that bitterness toward them. And you would wish them ill. If you had an opportunity to lock them away, would you do it? Well, you think of Joseph. You see, in the affliction, even though the Lord was with him, even though at times the iron came into his soul, Joseph, because the spirit of God that indwelt him. He grew up and became strong in himself. Ye meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. He, he, he could see the hand of God in all this and, and, and the hand of God bringing these brothers to a change and, and repentance and, and, and therefore on that basis he, he forgave them. The psalmist said this in Psalm 118 verse 12, I will take the cup of salvation. He added, and will call upon the name of the Lord. He then added, I will pay my vows now unto the Lord in the presence of all his people. And I'm saying this morning this. I'm saying to all of us. I'm saying to myself. I'm saying to those young people in the church. Those that are online. Rejoice that you're saved. Thank God that you're in Christ. But you know, it's not enough to be in Christ. It's not even enough to serve the Lord. Good as that is. We must go on and through with God. We must learn of him. We must lean upon him every day. We must love him and be loyal to him. And we must love him. And yet the reality is that many have remained immature spiritual beings. And what's keeping us back from going on and through with the Lord? Is it an idol? Is it a love for television and the internet? Nothing wrong with TV and internet. It can be used for good, but it can be a tool for evil. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Paul says, I labor. The word labor there means striving. It means agonizing of heart and mind. And he says, I do it according to his working. Not produced in me by a human hand. It's not me myself that's forcing myself to do this. I'm not coaxing or cajoling myself. See, Paul realized that he couldn't coax or cajole or counsel or, or carry God's people or change God's people by human effort. He knew that he could not produce a holy people by himself. It was vital 
that those people experienced the power of God. And Paul knew that. The true church has to be a reflection of the gospel preacher. And is that not the need of the hour? Gospel preachers that are God are, is working in and through to his glory. I say to you this morning, as you think about preaching, and I know you love preaching, and I know you love me in the gospel, what is the great goal of every gospel preacher? It has to be this. He exists to preach Christ in the power and unction of the Spirit. His proclamation is centered as he preaches Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So there's a positive and a negative. But his real purpose is this. He labors in that church to produce fully mature Christians. To see spiritual babes grow in Christ and become strong so that they're unmovable in relation to the work of God. 